Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Paul, how are you brother? Yeah, good mate, good. How's the weather in uh, Wales? Wet. Yes. Wet, but uh, for the time of year, we're lucky. It's quite mild. Yeah, it has been mild, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I've been going out for my run in the morning and thinking, blimey, this is, um, what do they call it? Balmy, bol- innit? Balmy. When it's... <laughs> this is global warming, I'm happy, mate. <laughs> I, hate, I hate the cold. I had enough time to be cold. Yes, I am. Um... I'm the same. I could quite happily live somewhere an awful lot warmer all Definitely, year mate. all year round. Um, yes, got you. So I'm just going to say hello to our wonderful friends at home. I hope your new year is absolutely fantastic. Um, it's my great pleasure to welcome Paul to the podcast. Uh, before we begin, we're going to say a big thank you to Roger Little Hayes who put Paul and I in touch. Roger sent me a message and said, my mate will be good on your podcast. And I thought, oh yes, he bloody well will, won't he? Because Paul's got an incredible story, um, starting back in the military and then going through to the Olympics. And um, I'm looking forward to learning more uh, as much as I dare say everybody at home is. And um, Paul, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, from my understanding, the army that's a, that's a very proud regiment. Does does yeah, it? Yeah, well, our history goes back to sixteen eighty nine. Obviously, it's no more now with the uh, the cats and the and uh, the the playing around with the military. It's now called the Royal Welsh merged with the South Wales Borders and the RRW back in two thousand and. But coming back there, you know, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, very proud history. Yeah, I I always think about that when you hear these regiments merging because it kind of scrubs around all the esprit de corps, doesn't it? You know, all, all the... it, it cuts it out. It's um, I mean, so we, when I joined, <laughs> we had a, there was it was classed as a family regiment, so you had guys. You know, brothers, cousins, and it was a huge influx of. There was a huge, um, what was what do you call it? God thing on being proud, being part of something. Now, you know, all these great city people in Whitehall don't know jack about the the military. Just they just don't paper. It looks good, and they merge these regiments, and it loses their identity. You know? Yes. Yes, when you look at the landscape of it all, Paul, the whole of the British Army is going to lose its identity because it's now been merged into Europe and they're doing it all. Yeah, it's what it's cut again, isn't it? 2023 now. Yeah. You see uh, a lot more slimmed down military again. Yeah, it's all this, uh, they call it future soldier. And um, yeah. Yeah, we won't. <laughs> don't get me started on that subject because that's. Uh, that's the bloody big can of worms that is. Um, but tell me, why did were you from a military family, Paul? No, I wasn't. 
just always wanted to join the military from a, from, from a toddler. And there was something I wanted to do. And uh, as soon as I could, I, I joined. In fact, I joined before I left school. You know, I, I went down to the recruiting office, walked in at 16, said, I want to join the army. Uh, um, the guy then sent me upstairs to the doctor. It was a cough. Yeah, you're okay. That was my uh, medical. And he said, right, you're off to deep cut to um, what they call uh, what they call it, uh, tears the weekend. Yeah. And from there then, they sent me to um, IJLB, the Infantry Junior Leaders Battalion in Foxton and Kent. Wow, so you were in the Junior Leaders. That's a blast from the past. Yeah, it was. I remember that. It was almost like the kids' army, wasn't it? It was... I mean, well, it's like a military academy, wasn't it? Yeah. What the Americans called it, an academy, you know? Gosh. 16 to 17 year olds. I know, it really brings it home to you that just... Well, it's in the boy soldiers, they call them. Yeah. Kind of savage, isn't it, when you think about it? What, what, When you think about the job that they might have to go and do. Well, it was treated like a school, really. It was like, you know, we had um, three terms. Yeah. A report was sent back to your parents, saying how you were doing. But it wasn't maths and English, it was military training, field craft, weapon handling, you know? Yes. Less teacher, we taught her to take lessons and stuff. I tell you what, mate, if they taught me that stuff at my school, I would have blown the bloody place up. <laughs> and I tell you what, school yeah. for me, that was my school. You know, I was bright in school, but I had no interest in school at all. You know, kids stay in school, right? <laughs> yes. So, um, what's it like when you actually leave the junior leaders then and go to your regiment? Is that was that a big shock? Yeah, well, obviously you're coming in from boys to men, isn't you? You know. Yeah. And uh, you're joining guys who've been there, done that. But as I said, this is where the uh, the family environment, the the regiments come into it because they just embrace you into it, you know. Yeah, got they, don't you. Your, they don't see your age. As long as you can do the job, that's all they're concerned about. Yes, I bet. And um, what were the um, Royal Welsh Fusion Fusiliers? Did they go down south? They no. Um, funny enough, we were in Germany um, when it kicked off, and then they posted us my company to um, Canada. And then when the Gallagher went up, we were on standby, but uh, they didn't send us down there in the end. Yeah, it's it, that's a, a weird one, isn't it? Because it was it was um, it was a, a bum tension moment to think that we could be sent down because we were only in Canada. But in the end, the powers of peace said no. You know. Yeah. Did you want to go? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's what you, that's what you paid to do, isn't it? You know what I mean. You don't join the army or the marines or any other forces. You know, I, I, nobody embraces war, but uh, you know, you've got a job to do, and that's what you do. Yeah, I remember I was on guard duty once in the marines, and the security guard was an ex-marine. All right. And he said that when his unit went down south, he was held behind for rear party, and I. My heart just sunk for this bloke. I mean, imagine. Yeah, that's, that's got to be the worst thing ever. Yeah. It's bizarre, isn't it, really? Because it, that might have saved his life or might have saved him getting his head blown off or, you yeah. know, or losing, losing his eyesight or something. 
but the mentality when you're in the forces is you you just you want to be included you want to go and well that's what you're there for you know yeah. you don't join up there you know you don't join up just for the jolly although obviously a lot of it is, you, you, you know yourself you do get a lot of jollies but yeah. you know you, you're, you're paid to do a job well we, we've got something in common haven't we because when they asked me at the end of training which unit do you want to go to? I said 4-2 commander because I knew that they were going straight on active service in the Northern Ireland conflict. So yeah. I found myself, I had a bit of a weird uh, ex uh, geographical experience in Belfast, Paul, because my little group, there was about 20 of us, we were called the Commando Reserve. We were like this little reserve troop that were going to float around. And first of all, we were attached to M Company, which was White Rock. And, right, yeah. And we did two weeks at White or, or a week at White Rock, and then we got tasked to go and support Lima Company at um, Girdwood Park. And that's when it all kicked off, and that's when I realized why we'd done all this training before we went. Well, we 81 we was here doing the hunger spikes, and that uh, Dalit Company, that was in Dalit Company. And we were, done, we were posted to the uh, West Belfast, which included. The uh, infamous Divis Flats, Lower Falls, Springfield Road, Falls Road, um, and then going up into the uh, uh, you know up into the Protestant areas. So we had quite a big area to cover. Um, it was quite quiet first of all, but then obviously the hunger strike has started going off. And that's like you said when it all kicked off. And yeah, o Ireland was a just a crazy time for a service person yeah and i don't even like like to go there and and, and talk about what the civilians you know mu who lived there must have gone through oh yeah definitely you know but it was such a big contrast you know you'd be patrolling the protestant area and you could relax to some extent but then you cross the road into the catholic area and you'd have to switch on, spread away more, you know, and yeah. the hostility between the, just the street, you know, just crossing the road. Yeah, I remember we went out on a night patrol. I think it was, I, I think it was round about the time the SAS had just filled this young lab with about, I don't know, 20 odd rounds. Sorry if I get this wrong, folks, but, and there was rumour of this, uh, um, I don't even want to say it because I get in trouble, but there was rumour of a certain policy, uh, in the special forces when it come to uh engaging the uh yeah, no, the, the, you know engaging the other side let's say and um we went out on a night patrol round about then and i i remember our brief was if you come across a a nationalist i don't like to use the t word it will get us demonetized but that's what we we called them back then um you come across a nationalist you know shoot him say him there was some hers weren't there but yeah but, but shoot him if you come across a loyalist you know setting up a, a device or something it's up to you <laughs> so but obviously you, you're governed by the rules yeah you know you got rules of engagement and all that but when, when you're in there you know on the on the, on the ground and you know, it's kicking off everywhere you know you've got to interpret them rules as you see them do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, you know, you can't, you, you, you could go a bit further, but like you said, 
yeah it's a funny conflict I, i've i've had my suspicions since who was behind it all and now a lot of stuff's coming out of the woodwork about that they they reckon british intelligence ran the ira um there's a lot more to it yeah a lot more to it yeah i'll say ran you know they had they they were yeah. con controlling some of their main players let's let's say and after uh I don't know what we've seen on the planet this last 20 years. Cough, cough. Um, yeah. It, it doesn't surprise me that these shenanigans go on and the, the gullible public just keep keep buying. You know, you've got certain people saying they were never in. Yeah, all right. Cough, cough. Yeah. You know what I mean? We know for a fact that they were. But, you know, and yet again, you let down with this Northern Ireland agreement. You know, I could go into the politics of it and all that, but let's let's just instead talk about our our, our experience there, Paul. What what was it like the first time you left the barracks to go on patrol? Hairy. It was the first time I realised. Um, you know, I was I was uh, eighteen years old, and I I, I patrolled onto the Fords Road, and you know, you heard a lot about it, and you thought, wow, you know, you know, my eyes were going everywhere. Every person that was coming up to me, I thought, oh, hang on, they're going to shoot me or whatever, the very first time. Yeah, did you get, did you get lulled into a false sense of security initially? Not at the beginning, but as time went on and as the months went on, we tended to get more blasé about it, you know. You never switch off, you, you couldn't afford to do that. But you knew the areas, you knew the ground. Yeah, I found towards the end of our tour, I just love going out on patrol. Yeah, yeah. It's just like a little mini adventure for a... I know it sounded daft, but I didn't think I wanted it to end, to be honest. Because at the time, that's what it was paid to do. Yeah, it's weird. I remember, I've heard people say, if you go out on patrol and say you're not scared, then you're lying, right? But I honestly, I was never scared my whole time there even though quite a lot of things went bang mm -hmm. and even our, our, i remember our, one of our last intel briefs was they said fellas think of it like this there's semtex in every lamppost <laughs> and well, i don't think because we were so busy and you're trained to do stuff out there i don't think you you think about being scared because you're doing a job you, you're out there doing so many things that it doesn't pop into your head that you're scared. Perhaps when you get back and reflect on it, then you think, oh, hang on, you know? But at the time, I can honestly say, you know, I, I, it didn't pop in my head, you know? Yes, yes, got you, got you. Did you, did you lose anyone over there, Paul? No, luckily we didn't. It's... We went through the uh, 10 hundred strikers, ah. and all that, you know, the with the, all the uh, the riots and the shootings and the bombings but luckily we didn't lose any of our boys yes i remember so in 1981 the hunger strikes i was 11. okay and i remember it was on the news every single night wasn't it yeah well i was 18 i had my 19th birthday in uh, asana in hastings street police station I had my 19th birthday in a river <laughs> <laughs> on Dartmoor in winter. That was quite fun. Um, 
yeah the hunger strikes so that if i remember rightly there's been a brilliant film was made in the last two or three years about about this it's re really worth a watch i can't think of the name of of I'll have a look on the internet in a second. Yeah. Really, really worth a watch. Um, Bobby Sands was obviously the... He was the first to go, he was. Yeah. He starved himself to death, didn't he? Well, they all did. All the ones that died. Did they all die, yeah? Yeah, well, the ten of them. God, that's commitment to a cause, isn't it? Oh, definitely. You know, you know in some ways, you've got to admire their commitment. Yeah. You know? It didn't mean much to us other than... Uh, the activity went up. Yeah, it, 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 this sort of stuff gets overlooked. And yet this is the sort of, I think what we need to understand more as a society, that these men were so committed, committed to a level that as the 19 year old me as a, as a squaddy on the street, I could never understand, you know, they were very connected. They must have, you know, well, obviously they starved themselves to death. Yeah. You know, and, and like you said, the, their commitment, you've got to admire, you know? Yeah. But to us, to, if, if, if I said any truth, it was good evidence to me because they were, they were seen as the enemy. Yes, Paul, they were, weren't they? And, 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 uh... and I'm being honest, you know, there'll be people out there who think I'm on now. You know, wind your neck in, mate. But they were the enemy. So when they went, they went. Yeah. Before, you know? Yes, yeah, so I, I mean, they did these dirty protests as well, didn't they? Where they would... Well, that was part of the hunger strike, yeah. Yeah. And they were... Ah, oh, the stuff they would do with, like, excrement and... and, and yeah. Well, they spread it all over the walls of the cell and that. I'm not judging these men, folks at home, by the way. I'm, I'm just saying that... No, no, you can't judge them. No, you, you've got to admire, like I said, you've got to admire their commitment yeah. and what they, uh, what they want to achieve. Yes. And, you know, for anybody who's willing to die for their cause, you know? But like I said, to me, it didn't mean much to me when they no. went, you know? No, of course, and I mean, I mean, you you were a t what just a teenager at the time? Well, eighteen, yeah. You know, I was eleven years old. So, to be honest, it was just like nasty jokes in in the schoolyard, in the school playground. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. But you know, like I said, as to me, they were the enemy at the time. So when they went, they went. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't shed a tear over them. Yes. Did did you um, get many contacts? Yeah, oh yeah. Every day. Every day. As, as soon as Bobby Sands went, the threat level went up twofold, you know. And we say, I remember on, we was on Springfield Road and riots going on. And Roger Lewis was was part of it as well. And and I was knelt down on the corner covering my the mate, my boy, the mates. And I looked across the street and there was like dust flicking out, mortar. I thought, well, what's all that? And I didn't realise because I didn't hear it. It was bullet rounds flying over my head. Somebody from behind me was shooting at me. Luckily, I was kneeling down, but I never heard anything. I, I, to this day, I never heard the shots. That's all I saw were these like mortar, um, brick mortar coming up to the... Up to the up to the house in front of, in front of me, you know. 
Yes, got you. I'm just looking for a photo while we speak so I can show our friends at home the craziness of it all. Uh, maybe I'll have to find it another time, but I've got this photo when I'm over there and it's this this little lad putting my berry on. It was at the <sighs> is it the Divis Flats, you know, the hardest oh, the Divis, yeah. one of the hardest Republican kind of strong That was my area to cover. Yeah. And this little lad, the kids they don't, you know. Fortunately, he was that young age, he didn't obviously know the conflict. No, that's right. And I remember just looking at him thinking just how sad this all is. You know, these kids have got to grow well, up into this. Years, years after, I was, um, I was on a cruise in, uh, and uh, I was um, in the lift and I had the medals on. It was a, a, a black tie event. And people got in the lift with me and they said, uh, What's that for? I, you know, I'm reacting to say, you don't like to say, do you? No. And I just said, oh, North Island. And they said, uh, we were all bad over there. Just like that. Yeah. I thought, no, they're not. The majority of the people in North Island are bloody good people, you know? Yeah, well, I've been drinking with, with IRA members because um, when I worked in Hong Kong, it was impossible to avoid them. Yeah. I was a nightclub doorman and they would, Come in the nightclub. I think. I think it. If I remember rightly, I think it was because a lot of them had come over to. Many Irishmen had come over to work on the new airport. I might. Right. I might be getting that wrong, but you know, I remember <clears throat> one chap I was trying to speak. He just did not want to know. He just literally told me to f off. Well, um, yeah, you, you always get the. You always get them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, you know, I, I met. Um, I was in, in Tenerife, donkeys just after, and I had my G10 watch on. Forgot I had it, just wear it, you know, military watch. And uh, guy came up to me and said, uh, "What was your mate?" I went, "Whoa, hang on, you don't want to talk about it." I don't. I thought, "Hang on, who's this guy?" Because you don't like to say yeah. But he happened to be here. He was in the, the parachute regiment. But you, you're always weary, you know. You never. I yeah. never, you know. I, I always watch what they say or who I speak to, you know, even now. Yeah, I mean, for seven years of my life, I had to check underneath my car before it got I in. Still, you ask my wife, I still do it now, I go into a restaurant, and I've got to sit facing the door and facing the, 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 the people in front of me, mm. you know? Yeah. I hear it on my back to the door and back to people. I've got yeah. to watch the area, you know? Still do it now, what's that, 40 years on? From the from I remember we used to have to leave when we pulled up behind a car. Friends at home, we're talking about in the UK now, not 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 just over the water, but in the UK because the security threat was so high. You checked under your car every morning. You weren't allowed to wear uniform like like the probably probably are now. You had to leave a space when you pulled up behind someone at traffic lights. You had to leave a space so yeah. if you come under attack, that you could you could. You had a space to get out of there. Yeah. Um, and sadly, people got shot in their cars, Paul, didn't they? Uh, well, even in um, Germany. In Germany, remember, yeah. Um, we was up in Germany and the threat levels up there. And that's why they changed the number plates. Because we have the German number, the, the, the old um, BFBS number plates. And the, the IRA and that could target them, knowing they were soldiers. Yeah. And they did. So 
the government then change it to just British numbers, you know? Yes. The other side to my Hong Kong story, by the way, was one chap was like, he said, uh, he said, you've been in the British military. And I said, yeah. And, uh, and I said, and you're in the IRA. I said, but the difference is I'm not in the British military anymore. That's it, yeah. But you're still in the IRA, clearly. <laughs> and and then we went for a beer and, and you know, it was absolutely, absolutely fine. It's just, it's just one of those things, isn't it? Just a... Well, we was, well, we was in there, myself and a couple of mates of mine, um, we all served, and we was in, uh, went over to Dublin for uh, the rugby, and we went into this pub, and there was a band playing, and they just said, uh, we, we, it was quite packed in there, and uh, they said, uh, oh, and this, this is for the boys from the north, and we said, oh, hang on, we better get out of here, so they found out we were ex-military. Yes, know? yes, of course, gosh. So, Paul, let's, Let's move on then to what do you call it? Do you call it an accident or? Well, yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, well, accident. Yeah, what it was, it was an accident. I was playing for, I was playing for my regiment um, in Warminster. You know, nothing heroic. Um, one of the things, I was awful. I was into the boxing, into the rugby, into the football athletics, anything to stay up with the green, you know, put yeah. tracks track on. And uh, I'm playing rugby, and I, I, I was a wing forward, but um, the, the powers that be, the rugby officer that said, look, and the coach, we're looking for a mobile prop, and we think you fit the bill. So I said, yeah, no problems, I'm going to play rugby, I don't mind. So I'm playing, I went up to prop, uh, doing quite well, I see, you know, scored a few tries, it was working all right. Uh, but it was one of the days, it was, Quite a day like today, really. Dank, dark, you know, wet underfoot. And I, I come up against the prop, you know, 23 stone, big guy. And we went down in the scrub. Scrub collapsed due to the on slippery. And the scrubs kept um, uh, pushing. And there was like a guitar string going off, like a twang. I heard it now in the, this was like a twang. And that was it, boof, couldn't feel that. Index, that was it. Whereabouts was this in your lower back then? This no, it was in my neck. Wow. So I, I dislocated my spine, um, spinal, you know, spinal, uh, spine itself at the C4 level, which is quite high up. But that dislocation crushed the spinal cord, and that's what done damage. Oh, it's it's a cliche worst nightmare, isn't it? Really, um, it's one of the things you know, it, it, you. I was playing rugby from 11 years old. Always played rugby. And you don't think it happened to you. But it happened, you know? And was this other guy, he was just playing, he wasn't being malicious or anything? He no, 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 not at all. We, we just packed down against each other. The scrum collapsed, as you, you see it does. He collapsed on top of me. The both packs were still pushing. And it, I just twanged them. You know, the, the neck was dislocated. And did you realise you couldn't move at that moment? No, I didn't. I was, I was wide awake. I, I, I can still remember it to this day. And what's that, 30, 39 years now in October. Um, I was lying on my front and I thought, well, I, I wanted to get up, but I couldn't move. 
I couldn't understand why I couldn't move, you know? Yeah. Um, and the guys were coming and talking to me, trying to keep me awake, I guess. And you know, the, the old uh, military humor, the squad humor, you know, showing the jokes at me and all that, trying to keep me awake. But I couldn't understand why I couldn't move, why I couldn't get up, you know? Yeah. And at, at what point did they move you to the hospital? Well, obviously they knew that something was wrong because nobody attempted to move me. And they sent me then, sent for an ambulance. I think it was 20, 30 minutes after the ambulance came and took me to Salisbury General. And were you still conscious during all this time? Yeah. Well, I had a strange experience. I was lying on my back and my head was down, but I felt my body was trying to rise up. Now, whether that's an out-of-body experience, I don't know. But I felt like my body was rising up, but my head wasn't. Yeah. And it's just such a strange experience, you know? And did you have to go for tests first, or did the doctor sort they, of... They got me to uh, Salisbury General, and the surgeon from that was all on standby and, and there. Um, and I was constantly chatting and talking. I think I was frightened that if I fell asleep, I wouldn't wake up. I think that was in the back of my head. So obviously, I, I think I must have talked the, the surgeon to death. Like you, know, he was fed up listening to me. And usually, they do it uh, with a, um, a, a an injury such as mine, such high up. You tend to have breathing difficulties. But obviously, with me chatting and talking and you know going on, he obviously said, "Well, I've got breathing difficulties, so I didn't need a, a tracheotomy, which is when they put a tube in your throat." Um, and that's what they did, they just knocked me out and pulled my neck back into place, the dislocation back into place, you know? Yeah. At that stage, did you, is that what you thought it was? I've just dislocated my neck and it's... Yeah, I thought, you know, I thought uh, I'd dislocated my neck and after, you know, some therapy, I'd be back up and, you know, up and well, back into my job. But I remember saying to the um, surgeon, and I know it sounds brutal, but... I think it works for me. And I said, look, am I going to walk? And the guy turned around and he said, at this stage, we don't know, mate. You know? And he was quite straightforward. I asked him a straightforward question. He gave me a straightforward answer. What, what does a person think at that moment, Paul? Well, going through my mind, I thought, I want this is a bit more serious than I thought. Mm. You know? I don't really, how can I say it? I, don't, I didn't feel sorry or, or sad. Or, I just thought, okay. Let's get on with it, you know? Yeah, that sounds like a good <laughs> a good attitude to have. Well, it, it, I had to think of the wife as well, you know? You so know. can you tell us her side of the story then? What, what has she heard so far about this? Well, yeah, obviously, um, when I was at the, at the injury uh, and I was on the rugby field, the guys come up and I said, look, you have to tell my wife, Lorraine, but don't tell her exactly what's happened, you know. Um, so Lorraine said that um, two guys went to the door, knocked the door in our flat and said, look, you've got to come with us, Paul's had an injury. Now she thought, because I was always getting bumps and scrapes, she thought, oh, you know, I'll pack in an overnight bag and uh, he'd be out the next day. But it wasn't until she got to the hospital that she realised how serious it was. Because, you know, I told her not to tell her. Yeah. But... She, she must have been just distraught. Um, well, 
Lorraine's quite resilient. She's, you know, she's quite, uh, she was brought up in a military family. Her father was in the army with me. So she, she, she's doing activities, let's get on with it, you know? And I know she hid a lot as well from me. Yeah, I've got you. Um, what, was there any of this kind of, oh, maybe he'll walk, maybe, you know? No, no. Um, the, as I said, the surgeon said to me, at this stage, we don't know, mate, if you'll walk again. And I don't think anybody as that I can remember saying, oh, maybe you'll walk, maybe this. You know, there was no false hope, but I think they were quite straightforward and quite realistic on what I could and could do. You did, know? Did, did you have any feeling of, right, I will walk, that, that sort of thing? Um, yeah, well, obviously, you know, to me, I, it was an injury. I got to get over the injury and I get on with my, my life. You know, I never, never, ever thought I wouldn't walk. And was there a point, Paul, where it all kind of hit home and you, you just had to accept it? Yeah, that? well, what happened was after um, Salisbury, um, they decided to take me to um, Cardiff Royal Infirmary. Now, they were going to fly me in a, a military helicopter, but apparently my, I wasn't stable enough. So they, they put me in an ambulance with police escort and drove me there. You know, I actually stopped the... Um, um, stop the stop traffic on the seven bridge, take the fame that is. Oh, wow. Um, and once I got to California Infirmary, and then they put me um, in the ward, and the surgeon came and saw me, and the nurses, and then they left me to my you know, left me on my own. Then, then it kind of hit home that I know what's happening here. This is serious, you know. Yes. What and. What did you make any? We, I guess, what I'm getting to is, does it take time for it all to sort of settle in? What's actually happened, and and to make a plan? Um, right. When when I first had the injury, you don't think about it much. They tell you know they're quite right from an early start. They said, look, you're not going to walk. You're going to use certain parts of your body, and we'll we'll get you to that stage. Um, but you're not going to walk again. Okay, it hits home. When you're then in a hospital environment and then on to a, a rehabilitation hospital, which was Rookwood Spinal Unit, you're cocooned into a, in, a, in a hospital environment where the people around you are all the same and the nurses are there, you're, you're dead. So it doesn't hit home until you get out of that environment. So when I got home then into back home home, in the house back home, left hospital. It kind of hit home then, this is the rest of my life. And to be honest with you, it took me a good six, nine, nine months before I accepted what was my condition, the injury I had and how it was going to be. And to be honest with you, it was a nasty sod, excuse the language. And I, you know, I put my, my family, and particularly my wife, to a load of crap because it was just a, a, a way of trying to adjust to make to what happened to me. Yes, I bet. I bet your emotions must be all over the shop. Well, it was, you know, and it, it, it seems like I wouldn't have done this today. You know, you know, I, I wouldn't have been talking to you today. You know, I, you know, you can see my hands. You know, I, there, I wouldn't be 
holding a cap that way in front of people. You know, I wouldn't eat in front of people. You know, and my family would come in. I'd be in the middle of food or something, and I'd throw the plate to all. I just didn't like the way I was eating and drinking in front of, you know, I didn't want people to see it, you know? Yes, I do. I, well, obviously, I don't know, but I can empathise, uh, Paul. Wait, did you hit the bottle at all? Um, no, I didn't. That's one thing I didn't do. Um, my, it was, you know, being in the military or ex-military, um, you like things done, and if you want them done, you do them straight away, bang. And it was frustrating that I couldn't do the littlest things or things weren't done straight away and to my liking. And I just used to kick off big time, you know? I used to shout and scream and it was all born out of frustration. I couldn't accept that things, I, I had to learn to do things a different way. And because of that, then I just kicked off big style, you know, I, I'd, throw, I'd throw tantrums and I'd be a real nasty sort, to be honest with you, you know? My missus would say I'm like that now, mate, so... Well, I would say you, you, you'd have to ask my wife as well. <laughs> Did you? Was there any part of your body you gradually got feeling back in? Yeah, well, um, I started getting feelings back in my, my arms, you know, and, and all over my body. I've got, you know, it's different. The spinal injury is, is a strange injury to have because there's no two same people, you know? Um, my injury was quite high up, uh, paralyzed from, technically paralyzed from the chest down. But at the same time, I can move my arms. I can't move my fingers, but I can move my arms. I can push around, I can eat and drink. I can feel parts of my body all over my body. My feet, strangely enough, you know, in certain parts of the body. But at first, you, I spent the best part of four or five months lying on my back with weights drilled in my head, pulling my neck straight, couldn't move. That's a weird one, isn't it? When they, they drill that, it was it that cage thing that they... Yeah, it wasn't the cage thing for me. It was, you know the old um, hand, hand drills that they had with the wine there? Yeah. The dad drilled two holes, both sides of my head, and then they attached a clamp, which then dangled off the edge of the bed with weights on pulling my neck in place. And that's what, that was me for the best part of four months. Does your, does your skin just recover when they take those screw, those bolts out? But yeah, it's, it's quite sensitive still, you know. But um, it, it's like anything else, it heals, doesn't it, you know? Because the thing that we haven't discussed is you, you're not only going through this trauma, but you're also, I guess, having to consider how long are you going to be in the army for? Well, that was the other thing. That was my life. I just wanted to be in the army. And as far as I was when I joined, I was going to be there for the full 22 or more, you know? Um, so when I was, we, had, we moved into um, military quarters when we got married. So we, when, we, when I had this accident, we, had, we didn't have nothing. Because at the time, the military gave you everything, knives, forks, cups, the lot. So well, luckily I moved back uh, purposely to uh, back to where I, was, I lived. I was born, raised, and I moved into my family, my mom and dad. So we were lucky there because we had a good family around us. Um, but 
I had no idea what I was going to do or what was, what was going to happen. Um, and I got attached to an ex-artillery um, colonel. He was like, my, he must have been my, like a liaison officer for me, you know. And um, he put me on a posting in inverted commas for three years after my accident. So that I had a transition period, of, you know, I'm still paid by the military. I'm still in the military for all intents and purposes. Although I'd like to see him sign me up and send me off the, the war zones. Suppose I could go in the tanks, mechanized. But um, yeah, so I had that little transition period, but it was still strange when I went up to Kodagoshi in Barracks in um, Krakawa uh, to hand over my um, ID card and be signed off, you know? Because then I had no idea what to do, what was going to happen or what we were going to do. But that three years gave me enough time to get my pension. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I'm just trying to take all this in because the leaving the military, that can just throw up loads of challenges for the, you know, for men and women, just that in itself. Yeah. You're, you're having to go through that on, on top of this, uh, you know, incredible, incredible existing challenge. Um, I'm always amazed by people that don't hit the bottle. <laughs> so no, no. Uh, well, I, I, I really didn't. You know, I, I can honestly say that's one thing I didn't. I think, to be honest with you, it was a lot to do with the family around me. You know, uh, I say, if you if you know the, the 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 families in the valleys, they're quite close knit, and um, I had you know, obviously my wife in the ring. She understood the, the military better than me because she was born and bred into it. So she understood some, some way of what I was going through, you know? Yeah. And I had a, a, my mother and father. My mother was a typical Valley's mother, wouldn't take any crap off me, never did as a kid, I wouldn't do now. And, you know, I had the rest of the family around me. So they, they were the ones that sort of like, enveloped us and, and cocooned us and, and helped me through it, to be honest with you. Did you receive any funding? Is, is that forthcoming easily or is that hard to oh, get? Did... Well, I did. When I got out of the military, like I said, I, had, I, was, I was paid by the military like any other uh, soldier for three years after my injury. Um, once I signed off then, the only thing I received was, um, which I still received now, was my War disablement pension and my army pension, and that's what I got, and that's what I get. Yeah, you know, I didn't get no compensation, and you know, obviously things are different now. And if it happened, if it happened now, I'd probably sit here as a millionaire. But at the time, back then, I think there was a, a a clause that you couldn't sue the crown in peacetime, and that's what they hit me with. Yeah, you know. Well, you sound like you're worth an awful lot more than a million pounds, Paul. The the way, <laughs> you know, you 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 you're 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 obviously a living legend. Um, I I what someone in the comments I think it's Roger has just quite rightly pointed out that that obviously you're downplaying this. I mean, we haven't even talked about how, how is it to get. I mean, the thrust. The frustration of having to learn new new things. Um, oh, one second. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, 
the frustration of, I don't know, putting your shoes on, getting dressed, feeding yourself. It, it... This is why um, I used to kick off big stuff because I couldn't do it fast enough and I couldn't do it to what? I couldn't do it without help. And, you know, I was quite independent from an early age. So, and being in the military, if you, you know, you've got a certain standard and you want to do it and you do it. And because I couldn't do it to that standard, or nobody could do it to that standard, because they didn't understand what I was trying to get, that's why I kicked off. And just think stupid things like picking up a cap, you know, you know or picking up, learning how to do a um, tweet and drink, using different methods with a fork and not just picking up a fork in the normal way. So frustrating that I used to kick off big style with it, you know. You know, now I, I couldn't give a monkey's, you know, I got a cap, you know, like I got this cap and I got to pick it up like that. But that's just tricks of the trade. And that's what I was taught by at the time because it was all new to me and it wasn't done fast enough for me. It used to frustrate me. And the only way I, I suppose, reacted was by kicking off. And as I said, for a good few months after, a good six to nine months after my accident, I could have, could be a right horrible song to Lorraine, to my family. But I think what pulled it out, what um, changed me, we were on a, a big family holiday to the Isle of Wight. You know, mother, father, cousins, the whole lot. And my cousins weren't going to take no crap off me and we used to go out and do everything. There was nowhere they wouldn't take me. You know, they, and, after a few drinks, they put me on a top of it. You know, I remember outside the pub, and they put me on top of the picnic table and just left me there and drove off laughing. You know, you can imagine the people coming up to the pub thinking, my God, what happened there? You know, oh, they, they stick me on a rocking horse, the kiddies rocking horse and things like that. So they wouldn't take no crap. But I, I, the one thing that changed over my attitude was, um, I started kicking off again in the shower that we had. I had it was something happened and I kicked off big style and I started throwing stuff. So my mum came in, shut the door, kicked everybody out, picked up a cup and threw it. So I picked up a cup and threw it. She put a cup on my lap, so I go and carry on. So I threw it, she threw another one. And we spent about a good 30 minutes throwing cups and I was going kicking off big style. She carried on, she said, I could do this all day. I'm not going to take any river shopping now. I didn't as a kid. And in the end, I just started laughing. I thought, why am I doing this? And my attitude changed from that time. And when I, I learned to start to accept stuff. And that was the turning point. Brilliant. Did Paul did counseling and all, you know, psychotherapy now is a massive, yeah. massive thing, isn't it, in society? But back then, I'm guessing it was probably few and far between, was it? Didn't have any, mate. Didn't have any. No. No. Hey, you're having it now, mate. Look, and I'm not even going to charge you. <laughs> hey, tell the truth. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> hey, it's always good to talk. I love it. That's why I started the podcast. Well, I, well what um, it's good about, I would say, we've got, we got a Veterans Association that you probably know yourself, and I'm Secretary Royal Branch, and we meet once a month, like minded guys, all of we all served together, mostly did. And it's good to, even now, you know, 40 years on, you can sit down 
have a pint with like-minded guys who understand what again you're, you're, you're on about. And it's 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 really is a, a way of it's a therapy in itself, you know. It's a therapy that civilians don't understand. Yes, it's nothing like getting in contact with an old buddy and and yeah. I don't know why it just it's just like you hit it off. You don't hit it off because well, you, you're already hitting it off, but you you just you, you've been you've been there and done that, you know, yeah. and then it's that. But yeah. don't get me wrong, I'm saying I, I've got some bloody good friends that I went to school with and they understand me brilliantly, you know? Yes. But it's always that, um, well, veterans that you, you can, like I could talk to you now as we're talking now, and you understand me and I understand you, but there'll be some civilians I think, well, what are they on about? Do you know what I'm saying? Do you see what I mean? Oh, exactly. It's um, and it's not just it's not just uh, in the UK. You could be talking to a veteran anywhere oh. on the plan- planet, and you're just. I was in Florida, and uh, I got talking to a guy ex-military in Florida, and like you said, it was the banter that's going back and forth. It's it's that military family, if you yeah. like. Yes. That lasts with you for a lifetime. And the other thing as well is is. What gets overlooked in these situations, and and I mean all these awful situations, uh, veterans' mental health. I'm include going to include that, and and whatever the the challenge may be. Obviously, addiction is a big thing in in the veterans' community. It's it's recognizing that the partners need support too, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, you know, um, there's a there's a, there's a huge change now in the mental well-being of, of veterans um, and I'd like to think their partners and family get that same, you know, it's a big thing. When, 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 when the, the family, the, 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 the soldier is, is one part of it, you know, when they go away on duty, you've got your wife or the girl or friend or the family, they go through virtually a lot of stress and a lot of feelings that they need to talk about, you know? Yes. And I like to think there's something there for them, you know? Yes, we, we did a podcast. I'm just going to have a look a look for it now. Uh, uh, well, I can't remember when, when it was, but we had to, we had the daughter of a, of a service, of a, of a serviceman on the podcast and her father, I think was a, I think he was quite high up as a officer or something. And, yeah, and um, she come on the podcast to say what it was like to live with a a serviceman who liked to drink, and what you know what it's like to grow up as a little girl, kind of in that environment, and all all this sort of. Well, as I said, my wife um, Marie, she was born into the the army. Her father was um, was was in my regiment, albeit he was a, a broad Irish Dubliner. Um, her, her father, yeah? Yeah, her father was from Dublin. But yeah, he was in a Welsh regiment. Yeah, work that one out. Wonder well, what I wonder what he was trying to do. I think what drinking. happened was his mother was Welsh and they moved to Wrexham for work. And I think he joined from there. Because he was a tailor. And uh, in the army, he was our regimental tailor. I think that's why he married Lorraine, actually, because all my kit was all done. Don't tell her that. <laughs> 
But um, he had a broad Dublin accent. You know, he served in North Ireland as well, which is a strange one. But so Lorraine understood the way of um, the, the, the military um, families. You know, she grew up with it. You know, she, so she understood better than me. And I think she coped a lot better understanding the, um, the wives and all that better than me, you know? Yes. I think her being in a, um, in, in, in a, from a military background, she coped better than I did when I had an accident. Yes. Well, to be honest, it's, um, you know, I don't know how to say this. I'm probably going to upset someone. And, and I don't mean one of our listeners. I mean someone in my family. But, I mean, my girlfriend, she, I definitely got the better deal. <laughs> Put it that way. She, she's lumbered with me. Oh, I, I did. I definitely did. I would say, uh, she, she, where I'm at, right, was in Germany. We were posted in Germany. And she used to work in the, do you remember the SKCs, the Soldiers Cinemas in Germany? No, I was be, being in the Marines. Oh, time. Yeah, we were never in Germany. Ah, right. Before your time. There was a, 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 a cinema called the SKC. I can't remember what it stands for now. Anyway, and she worked in there. And that's where I met her in, in, in the, where she worked, like, you know? Yes. And, uh, you know, she was 17 at the time. That was when the sentence started, Your Honour. <laughs> yeah. Well, for her. <laughs> for her, yeah, that's what it is. But she, uh, having said that, the way she met me, she hit me over the head with a frozen cornetto. With a what? A frozen cornetto. <laughs> I think for a bet, friend better to do it. So she hit me over the head with a frozen cornetto. And I still say to this day, I think I'm still concussed. Yes, my other half, uh, she. She uh, cornered me at a party and wouldn't let me go if I didn't promise to give her a signed copy of one of my books. <laughs> and I, 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 I used my commando escape and evasion tactics and I still never, she still never got that book, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but what she did get is half my house and, and she's got and, and a six-year-old. <laughs> so well, that's the thing. Lorraine got me. For, for, well, that's the worst part of the deal. But we have got two sons, so we're, we're thankful for that. Yes, I should no. just explain before I go and upset anyone any further. Um, hello, I'm in the middle of a podcast. Ah. <laughs> there we go. What, what did I say? Um, but no, I should explain that we uh, we amalgamated our, our houses before people think that she, <laughs> she's taken me for a ride. Um, Yes, families. Let's give a shout out to the families because uh, bloody hell, that everyone, everyone glorifies servicemen and makes them all this heroes bloody stuff, but they don't know half the story, do they? No, there's the, in the background. There, they, they, there's strong women, very strong women. Yes, that, that, that go through quite a lot, but understand it. To be honest with you, I'd say the. The, the, the soldiers' wives and the military wives are stronger in mind than the soldiers themselves. Yes. And Paul, Without a doubt. I'm, I'm conscious we haven't talked about your uh, Olympic career or history. Yes, so 
tell us what's the difference well what are the what are the adaptations they've they've put into wheelchair rugby uh, well what happened was i would say I, I was always looking for something something to do after after i got out um and i lorraine bumped into a, a guy keith jones um good friend still is a good friend um in in one of the supermarkets and he was looking to start up um a wheelchair rugby team in, in wales the first ever and that was back in 1989 so being a sport i thought i could do i signed up and we uh formed the pirates uh, wheelchair rugby team now whereas rugby is obviously played 15 side on grass Wheelchair rugby is played in the basketball court indoors, um, and it's four four sides, but it's at different levels. So me being a high level injury with less movement, I'd be a, a half what classed as a half point player, and I'd go up in half points up to three point five, depending on um, your movement and the ability you have, and um, so different levels of movement to different abilities would have to pass the different points and you go on court with a combination of four be eight points so you could stick a three and a half player half point player two point player and a one point player is that eight points there you know so you have different levels and you have to mix it up depending on the, the situation so it's it's um it's uh, full contact wheelchairs sport um it's physical i always call it chess with violence so it's very tactical but it's very very physical as well you know yeah how how, how do you tackle so, someone then you crash it with the wheelchair i love it i love it already yeah. and so if you google it you can see some of the post posts yes i'm oh. gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna try and get get up a clip uh Bear with me, everybody. And um, and uh, uh, is it okay? What's the adaptation like in your uh, as a sportsman? Yeah. What's, what's like the adaptation in your mind? Like I used to play like this, able-bodied rugby. Yeah. Now, now I'm playing this. Was is there any transition there, or is it just like fuck it? Let's just get up. Let's just get on with it. No, let's just get on with it. It's a it's a sport, you know. Yeah. Um, when, when, when I started playing back in the day, you know, I was doing at the grassroots in, in, in terms of um, playing in this country. You know, the, the teams were few and far between. And it was just in, in, in its infancy when I started playing back in the 89. So the wheelchairs were, well, the, the chairs that you sit in now were everyday chairs. No adapt, adaptation to nothing. I'm saying now if you see them, they're adapted specially for you, you know, they're built like tanks. So play but, is... Uh, in, like I said, in that day, back in the day, it was a case of, let's get on with it, you know? It's yeah. a sport. It's a physical sport. It's an exciting sport, and it was a sport that we really enjoyed. Yeah, so I guess it, 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 it was pioneering back in the day, obviously. Yeah, well, it was back in the UK. It started in Canada and into America. In the UK, I think it started kicking off around 87, 88. But there were very few of between the teams. 
Yes. And there was never Wales at all. And this is what Keith wanted to do, set up this Welsh team. So I was happy to come on board. And that was back in 89. Yes, it's funny, isn't it? Because the Americans obviously play. We're, what, we're watching Great Britain play in America. I'm, I've got a clip up on YouTube here. Well, Great Britain just won the gold medal round last year. Oh, really? In the Paralympics, yeah. Finally, they finally did. Yeah, it's it's um. You'd think the Americans would have their, I don't know, would they have trouble getting their head around rugby? No, the, I would say the, the the sport, believe it or not, was formed in Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said um, the 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 Canadians were looking for basketball has always been there, wheelchair basketball, but it's more for the 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 um. Guys who brought me backs for, for one or another. So they, they were always looking for people with neck injuries, they're less mobile. And they formed this game called, well, it was called Murderboard to start off with. That says everything, doesn't it? You know? <laughs> yes, it does. But, it does. Uh, to be, they had to change it to a more PC. Uh, does, does, it, does it take a lot out of your joints or anything? Because you Yeah, it's quite physical. Yeah. Is it, you, you train, you get yourself fit, you know. Is there any? It wears you down in the end, yes. Yeah. Is there a danger of like wearing out your joints and? Pulling? Yeah, yeah, very much. There's a few boys who, um, who burnt out to, you know, the, the joints wearing out. Paul, I just want to ask because obviously I'm well. You might not know this, but I, I do a bit of running now and again. It's kind of been my thing for for a few years now. But have you ever thought about? Doing one of these wheelchair marathons. I could, I, if I started with a marathon, I would still be here next week. Hey, that's all right. It's not a race. Oh, I know it, um, it is, isn't it? <laughs> I've because of the, because of my level of injury, um, uh, my arms are quite weak. Like I've got no, I've got biceps, but I've got no triceps. So although I can push my chair, I couldn't push it competitively enough to do a marathon. Yeah, got you. You know, um, so that was never an option. This is where wheelchair rugby was a good option because it didn't, you didn't have to be fast. With my level of injury, I was more a tactician. More, if you, if you look, if you, if you um, put it as to, uh, to what uh, rugby was, I would be a prop with somebody like, um, Keith, who was Keith, my mate, who started, was a bit more mobile. He'd be more like a centre. He'd be more faster and more able. You know. So I'd be there setting up and doing more tactics, whereas he'd grab all the goalies from all the balls. Can you tell us how, how did you get chosen to represent the UK at the Olympics? Yeah, well, um, obviously, you, you've also played. Um, I was playing rugby for the club. I started playing rugby then for Great Britain and Wales, etc. Um, but what happened was then for the Paralympics in um, Sydney in 2000, what I did, I actually was the manager. Wow. So what I did was I decided to stop playing the rugby um, as a player and go more to uh, the training um, admin side of it, you know? Yeah. So um, I, I, I was appointed then as the manager of the Paralympic teams to go to Sydney. Is that a player manager or just a manager? No, I decided just to do the manager. 
Good. Take it easy a bit. Sounds like you. I took it to both, you know. Yeah. And and how was it in general? I mean, it must it must be wonderful just to be in Australia. It was fantastic. And the the Paralympics were quite low key compared to the Olympics up until Atlanta in '96. Then you had Barcelona. But when you went to Australia, it was took up to a different level because the Australians, by nature, embrace every sport going. And the Paralympics, they embraced it so well. You know, mm. they had kids coming up to, you know, on school, school trips, doing projects on it. And, you know, I'd be walking down the street and I'd be mud, you know, surrounded by people wanting to know what the sport and what I was doing. And they took it to a different level. And walking out onto the, um, on the opening ceremony, um, onto the, into the, the main arena, and have 60,000 people you know, cheering and all that was a hell of a, you know, it had never been done before, you know, and until, so that's, that was a turning point for the Paralympics, I think, personally, was, was the Australia Paralympics. You know, nowadays, it's a fantastic event anyway, you know. Does it beg the question whether it, there should be a separate Olympics? I mean, that's... <laughs> Well, it is in a way. There's, there's the Olympics and the Paralympics. Should they be together, combined? Um, I never thought about that, to be honest with you. Um, I guess there's a lot of, you know, there's some logistical considerations for a Paralympics. Well, obviously, there's a lot of, obviously, as manager, it was part of my job. To, I spent the best part of two, three years setting up things. You know, I set up, uh, luckily it was the first time that um, the lottery funding was coming out. I, I, I don't even like, I don't even like calling it the power, I always just call it the Olympics because it... it well, yeah, that's right. It, what, in one way, would the Paralympics lose, um, what I can say, lose the popularity? Would it get enveloped into the Olympics, you know? Uh, but whereas nowadays the Paralympics is now filmed on, for instance, you know, Channel Four do it, yeah. and and the crowds. So I don't don't know. I, I think at the moment I, I think I'd be happier with the way it is because it's growing anyway as an individual. You know, more yeah. and more people are, are loving the sport. And Paul, what result did you get down there? We come fourth. Unfortunately, we lost out in the sort of like semi-final stage, mm. which bugged me a bit, to be honest, but uh, it was what it was. But it, it, I think we, what we did was set the, the, set the foundations. And, yeah. and now, like I said last year, fantastic achievement. They won the gold. You so know? you were... You were you were helping build the team for this moment, really, or build build well, the, build the ethos, you know. The ethos, yes, I like to think so. But um, it was the guys that come after me that done all the work, obviously. We well, just we set we just set the the, the foundations, you know. Yeah. We, what I'd like to think was we brought the wheelchair rugby into a more professional era because uh, you know I secured a lot of funding. With, for the first time, the guys 
uh, we paid the good for training, etc. You know, whereas before that self-fund a lot of it. Well, let, let's as we finish off. Let I just want to ask you what. How is it then with your interaction with the public, be, being in a chair, you know, obviously having different challenges? Do, have you had any bad experiences? Back in the day, I did, yeah. Um, back in the um, early 80s, um, I was called a uh, uh, fire hazard, you know. Mm-hmm. I met up with um, some ex um, soldier mates of mine, and we'd have a drink. And they said, come on, let's go up to this club. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll come to the club. And the bouncer stopped me at the door and said, you can't come in here, mate, you're a fire hazard. You know, it wouldn't happen nowadays. But I, remember, I accepted it because that was normal. I went, I went on a placement pool, right? When I studied, I studied youth work at university and I did this placement at working with young people and the building had three floors to it. Yeah. When, when on my first day there, this, this lad gives us a tour of the building and all the fire extinguishers, all the exits. And, and when we're on the top floor, he said, right, and this is where we leave the wheelchair people when there's a fire. <laughs> and I was like, what? He says, yeah, we leave them here. We, then we all evacuate the building. I said, well, why, why would you leave them in a burning building? He said, oh, well, then the fire brigade will come and get them, right? That's standard thing, though, is it? Hey, hey, I, I, I completely get it, but it just made me laugh that as a Royal Marines commando, there's no effing way I'd leave someone in a burning building yeah, yeah. if I could help it, right? Secondly, that this lad, to him, this was gospel, this was Bible, this was the rule, there's no breaking this rule. <laughs> I'm like, oh, mate. And I said to him, why wouldn't you, like, try and, you know, why wouldn't you just carry them out? He said, well, if I, dro- if I drop them, they might sue me. <laughs> See, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, it's, isn't it a strange situation we're in nowadays where you've got that suing culture coming from America, you know? For that guy to think, I can't save him because I, yeah, I might get sued. Yeah. You, know, you shouldn't think like that. You should think, I'd put him over my shoulder and run it out. If I fall... Well, at least I'm trying to save the time, do you know what I mean? Yes. That was my attitude, you know? I'm just, um, uh, Paul, I want to ask you about your your book. How How's book sales doing? Because that's a tough area, isn't it? Um, I'm not too sure. I, I got 32 uh, reviews on Amazon, so positive ones, am I bad? Yes. So, so it must be doing okay, you know? Yes, the long... The long road back, friends at home. There you go. I've got it up on the screen here for you, Paul. Um, Thanks. Grab yourselves a copy, guys. Kindle looks particularly uh, inexpensive, and and um, I don't know why it's that expensive for um, paperback. I believe I didn't set the price. By the way, tell people. Yeah. No, but I believe it's because I got photos in there as well. Uh yeah. The thing is, with some of these platforms, is the publishing cost is so high that if you don't set your price at a decent level, you don't make any money, Paul, do you? Uh, well, you know yourself, I'm saying you've been a published author yourself. So yeah. I know it went down to um, £11 at one stage. Yes. Uh, I, think that, I think that was uh, 
on the sale, but I know that the, 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 you know, the feedback I've had, it's a good read. Oh. I, I tell the story of my life, um, what I did, what, what we were talking about today, you know, warts and all, yeah. and never anything back. Just imagine if you were starting out on this journey, you just had, had an accident. A, a book like this would be invaluable to you. I'm, I'm... Well, I hope so. I think this is, it was my son, my youngest boy, Aaron. He, he, he inspired me to, or he encouraged me to do it. He, um, uh, you know, I was going to do something about a book, uh, but it was going to be based on um, Northern Ireland, basically. And he said, well, I want that. That's just a part of what you've uh, done. You know, we've got a story to tell up there, which could inspire, as you said, other guys who are in a similar situation to me. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll try it. It took me a year to do it, they do lockdown. And uh, well, the long road back is is is, is the, the outcome, really. Yes. I think I call it the long road back because it's taking me up in my sixtieth year now this year. And I think You don't look a day over eighty-five, mate. <laughs> That's the love of a good woman, that is me. And, you know, I think uh, why I call you that is being in my 60th year now, I've come to a point where I think, you know, it, it's, it's accepting, you know, it is what it is. Yes. I'm just going to say, friends at home, if you've got a question for Paul, put it now, put it in capitals so that I can read it on the, so I can see the question. Um, if you've got a burning question like, Chris, why didn't you ask Paul this? Now is your opportunity. But literally do it in the next 30 seconds because um, we're going to bring this to a close. Is there, Paul, is there anything um, that people should and shouldn't do? I know I know every situation is different and, 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 and obviously people's natures are very different. For example... I can imagine someone would appreciate if you open the door for them, another person would think you were being patronising. Uh, to be honest with you, mate, um, started off, uh, I wouldn't, I, I took offence at the, 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 the littlest of things. That's because people didn't know how to react around me. You know? For instance, I was in the, in the pub with my dad. And they'd come up to my dad and say, oh, what do you want? does he want a drink? And I was sat next to him and my dad took a lamp. I want to ask him, he's been there. But that wasn't there being ignorant. It was just that they didn't know how to approach it, you know? And I think when you, when you see somebody in a wheelchair, just treat them as normal. We are normal. We're, we're normal people, you know what I mean? I've got a brain, I've got a function. I've done everything. You know, I've jumped out of planes. You know, I... I Got a job now on a magistrate, you know? Yes. And uh, by pure coincidence, our friend Roger, who I've now worked out who Roger in the chat is, it's obviously Roger Littlehays, has asked me to ask you about that. So what 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 is a magistrate's duty? It's the justice of the peace. So it's, um, you, you know, you, you, when, you, uh, uh, when, when you go to court yep. for everything, then you come up, 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 up against me, basically. So if I get done for speeding in Wales now, we're all right, yeah? Um, uh, I'll have an envelope with uh, a couple of bob in the, in the post. Yeah, well, of course. Yes. 
Hey, if you like my girlfriend, you'll get a signed copy of my book, mate. Or no, maybe you won't. Oh, hey, that, that's a must, mate. That's got to be. <laughs> and how is that then? Are you, um, I bet you meet some scoundrels and I bet you meet some silly you stuff. Meet all, you meet all sorts. I would say um, I do criminal, other criminal court. I also do family court and I do domestic violence court. So you meet all sorts. And you get everything from speeding, drugs, you know, assault. You have the, the wide spectrum. And the guys I meet, you know, the, my fellow um, magistrates, they're fantastic people, you know, from all walks of life. You know, and the, the, the court that I sit in, up in Merthyr, Tidville, I'm just treated as a normal person. You know, going back to what you said about how you treat people, you know, you just treat them as normal people. I just get on with my, you know, I, I just turn up, I do my job, and as do normal other people, you know. Yes. Can I tell you my um, my court story? I've got I've, I've accumulated a few over the years because uh, I wasn't always, always this well behaved. But one time I was uh, I was up for I think it was speeding, and it was one of these small local courts somewhere. And the first person was up. They I think they were up for stealing a loaf of bread from the co-op, and that and that that case went on and on and on and on right. There's a guy behind me, he's had to drive all the way down to the southwest from Scotland, right? Because that's where he got that that's where he got his speeding ticket. So he's just like looking at his watch, going, Oh bloody hell. <laughs> right? The, the next guy he's up, right? It was actually a guy I went to used to go to school with. He's he's been poaching salmon, right? <laughs> poaching salmon with his dog lead of all things, right? So I think that's quite a skill, actually, to poke salmon with a dog. Yeah. Lead, but, um, so, so that's going on and on and on and on, right? This guy's like, oh, I don't believe, I don't believe. And as the third person got in a box, this guy goes, and what's this guy that then, Your Honour? He's stolen a vicar's bicycle. Uh. <laughs> it was, just, it, was, it, it was, uh, for anyone who's grew, grown up in the rural countryside, you'll know why I'm I'm finding this <laughs> this funny. Um, there's one last question. It's from Rob. He's saying, "Would you like Boris in front of you?" And I think we all know the answer to that. <laughs> That's uh, twenty years hard labour uh, and all the rest, isn't it? <laughs> Paul, listen, you've been absolutely brilliant, mate. I've Thoroughly enjoyed this chat. Um, I mean, mate, I have. Yeah, I, 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 I love talking about the Northern Ireland stuff because it's, it's. Well, you can go on, kind of, and it's, uh, it's a conflict nobody talks about. Yeah, and we're no. fortunate on the podcast. We, we've kept, you know, a lot of stories sort of alive. Um, but of course, as an ambassador for the the wheelchair community, if I can say that, you, you. You, you know, it's just incredible talking to you again. And as an ab ambassador for sport, <laughs> uh, you know, fantastic, fantastic, even more. So, what's uh, what's in the future, Paul? Um, well, I'm just kind of carrying on with what I'm doing now. I'm always looking for, for new challenges. If there's anybody out there that can give me any ideas, you know, always fancy going to the North Pole. First wheelchair guy to go to the North Pole, but. I think I'm a bit old for that now. I thought he's going to say, and I, and I hate the cold, so I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I thought he's going to say you want to go to the moon. I was, I was going to say well, ah. we've got to do that. We've got to do that first. 
Has anybody ever said, you know, I've, I've, I've done a few, uh, uh, you know, three, four uh, uh, parachute jumps for charity and, and uh, skydive, like I said, I've got in the glider. So anything, and you know, I'm always up for new challenges. And wow. Hey, I'll tell you what, what always impresses me are the, um, the guys who do the wheelchair skiing. Oh, the uh, ice hockey, sled hockey. No, when I... all oh, the skiing, yes, yeah. I see that, yeah. When, when I go snowboarding, these guys just fly past you, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're mental. Yeah. Um, I, how they have the balance, it's just a ski, What for friends at home, it's one ski with a chair yeah. a chair above it. And, and Yeah, the chap or the, or the girl, I've only seen chaps, but they sit in it and they have their sticks and then they're off and yeah and it's it's just an amazing feat of of balance um so there you go mate there's a challenge for you well like i said i don't like the cold <laughs> well we'll get you on a, a one of these indoor indoor snow places <laughs> i think there's one up near wales but right paul um don't stay on the line brother because i'm gonna uh, play us out but just to say massive thank you again no problem mate um feel enjoy free, talking to you yeah feel free to come back on a podcast anytime and up, update us on what i hope i hope people listening was you know it's okay you know oh i think it's i think they'll think it's wonderful mate because i i did and um and uh yeah i'm 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 the judge of a good podcast now because i've done a few uh, well yeah <laughs> I, I have i have seen a few of them i have been uh, I did uh, have a look at the film there. Yeah, so I hope you I hope you get to do a lot more because I think you should tell tell your story uh, as often as you can. Appreciate it, mate. Yes, and uh, Rogers just chipped in here with you. You've been diving. Will will oh, don't get little hands on diving, mate. He's, he was a born diver. Ah, okay. Yeah, he, he absolutely loves it. He, he breathes it. He does. Yeah, we'll take that next time. I got a few diving stories in the bag um paul have an absolutely fantastic uh monday an incredible new year i hope to hook up with you at, at, at some point i hope our futures cross uh, yeah uh, you keep in touch mate enjoy that yeah brilliant brilliant and to everybody at home if you can chuck us a like on the video that would be wonderful if you can yeah. do if you can do this thing here which is subscribe yeah that would be awesome paul i'll say goodbye to you again okay mate Goodbye to everyone at home. Cheers, mate. Let's look after ourselves. Let's let's all see ourselves soon. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris.thrall. Thank you.